Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. Good morning. Uh, here we are again at the Sandyland Studios, King's Cross, um, X-Studio, and we're just about to launch into the show and I uh, have some really interesting guests along today. Um, the guests today, and I'm going to introduce them in a moment, but the guests today um, all represent Johnson & Johnson, the global group Johnson Johnson, which most of us are better known Johnson Johnson for baby powder and baby oil and all, a whole lot of other sort of uh, um, uh, cosmetic um uh, things, but they also run big pharmaceutical business, a massive pharmaceutical organisation. And something that really interests me is that they're a huge uh, health uh, device manufacturer, and they are very big in innovation space around the world. And most people don't know that. Um, so, you know, right, right down to, to right down to the very um, um, uh, ba- uh, basics of things like. Um, diabetes and those sorts of areas of schizophrenia, which they are always looking at trying to improve people's lives. And I don't think many people get the, get the opportunity to have a, um, a chat or a mag to people at this level. And so we got, we're well represented today for the Asian region. So, and you know, we have spoke to Chris Hurrigan in the past from, who was a CEO of Janssen here in Australia. We have spoken to Chris Hurrigan in the past. Chris has now gone to Japan. And interesting enough, Chris has swapped with his Japanese counterpart, has come back to Australia, who we're going to meet in a second, and his name is Bruce. But before we do, um, and, uh, well, actually, I should introduce everybody first. So, uh, first off, we've got Chris. <laughs> so, Chris, you tell me who you are, your name, and I want to know what part of the business you represent. Okay, Mark. Uh, my name is Chris Sturkens, originally from Belgium, and I'm heading up the uh, pharmaceutical group for J&J in, uh, in Asia Pacific. So, official title is company group chairman, but it's... Uh, it's just a title like anything but, else. But it's, it's, it, you, you, you do the Asian region. Asian, Asia Pacific. So, and it includes yeah. what? Which so part? next to Australia, New Zealand, we have Japan, India, China, Southeast Asia, most of uh, those countries. So, well, that's like, uh, you know, 40% of the world. Yeah. In terms of population. population absolutely. Yeah. So that's a pretty big gig. Yeah. You're pretty young. You look young to me. How old are you? Thanks. 52. Serious? Yeah. I sleep in the Tupperware. It must be. <laughs> it must be doing something good in, in uh, Belgium. You know, like, are you from Brussels? No, from Antwerp. Antwerp. Okay. Yeah. Flemish part. Okay. Flemish. So do you speak Flemish? I, guess I do. You do. Yeah, I yeah. do, yeah. And French? French as well, yeah. And uh, do you speak any of the surrounding languages, like Dutch or anything like that? Uh, Dutch and Flemish are very close. Like yeah. Like 95% the same. And then German and English, of course, yeah. And uh, just, just I, I, one of the things that fascinates me about... Um, Belgium and also the Dutch is the uh, the orange movement, 
uh, particularly in relation to the Dutch. I mean, do the Flemish have anything to do with that orange movie? You know, when they all, William the Conqueror went from uh, somewhere in... Uh, yeah, Holland, he actually he conquered to... Belgium, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so we have this, this friendly rivalry between the Dutch and the Flemish mm-hmm. people. Yeah. So, yeah, that still lives, especially when you talk about football or soccer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah of so. course, the Dutch wear the bright orange outfit still, don't they? Uh, <laughs> yes, they Exactly, do. just to jam it into everybody to make yeah. them remember it. Um, uh, uh, Bruce, tell me about, uh, tell me your name and tell me your new role, which is your exciting new role for you. Yeah, I'm Bruce Goodwin. I'm the managing director for Janssen Business, the J&J pharmaceutical business here in Australia and New Zealand. And you were before... I was in Japan for the last almost three and a half years. Uh, I was the president of the business over there. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Happy to be back? Yeah, yeah. Very delighted to be back uh, back in my home country. Well, Japan's a good country, though. Japan is absolutely fantastic. It's a really, really interesting place. It's different and and it's it's a really vibrant place. So I really enjoyed being there. I learned a lot while I was there. Yeah, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about Japan because Japan is our second or third largest export market. Did you hear we were, uh, we've been pronouncing Janssen incorrectly, Dad? So, so, soft J, it's not Janssen. 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 I'm sorry about that. Yeah, but this is, this, is the, the, this is an Aussie show, so yeah. we fuck everything up, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> and, uh, Christoph. Yes, I'm Christoph Gletzer. I'm responsible for strategic marketing and market access across Asia Pacific. I'm originally from Germany, as you can tell from the accent. Um, live now in Singapore for the last five years. Lived in the U.S. before and enjoy the region a lot. Okay, that's, you know, it's interesting. Is that Singapore seems to import a lot of people from North Europe. I've got a friend there and he was the CEO of Singapore Post, um, Wolfgang Bayer, who recently resigned from Singapore Post uh, maybe two weeks ago. Um, he's from Austria and uh, a lot of people who work for him are from Austria. Um, and w- within the region, and we got someone from Germany here in Singapore. We got someone now from Belgium in, in Singapore. I mean, wh- what's that? What's the deal there? Why is a lot of Northern Europeans in Singapore? I think Singapore is maybe what, what we call Asia light, so it's a safe entry into Asia if you come from from the Western <laughs> markets. Um, it's pretty good located from an infrastructure point of view, especially for Southeast Asia. So easy access to all the main markets across Asia Pacific, um, and I think it has has a very vibrant diverse community, people from all over the world, which attracts, attracts more and more people to come there. But why are, they, why, why are North, like a lot of Northern Europeans, or am I just imagining it because we just have, to have a concentration in this room today? Uh, it, it may be just a concentration. We could say that, that most of Northern Europe are big export countries, right? So they have small home markets, like, like Germany, for example, or all the Nordics. So they're big, pretty big in exporting to the world. And then they need a central hub in, in Europe. And Singapore, this area, was a trading post from the last couple of hundreds years ago, um, which has I think, just developed over time. It's one of the fascinating things about Singapore because I, I have a business in Singapore and uh, Singapore Post being one of our clients, as, as is Singtel and, uh, and a number of other people. Um, uh, we have Rabobank uh, as a client up there and we do a lot, lots and lots of work for them um, in Singapore. And uh, the fascinating thing about Singapore, because I go there quite often, is that it's declared itself, the Singapore government has declared itself in the uh, the, uh, the the tech conference they had last year is going to be the tech centre of Asia. Mm-hmm. Mind you, China since declared itself to do the same thing, and so has Australia recently. I think everyone wants um, that, that eh? ticket. I think everyone wants that ticket. Everybody wants that ticket, but yeah. Singapore is doing it. I mean, they're one of those places, if they make a decision to do something, nothing blocks them. There's no roadblocks. Absolutely no roadblocks, and they'll, they'll make it happen. And... Uh, and I know in terms of Singapore Post, um, they've won global, uh, uh, the, the best global um, online 
delivery business in the world. They won it two years in a row. And they, they do a brilliant job because we've got clients all around the world who um, use their technology. But Singapore Post, is their, the way they push us to get the technology ahead of everybody else is ridiculous. I mean, they're so good at it. Are you guys experienced that in Singapore yourselves with, and even within your own organisation at J&J? Well, I think yeah, Singapore is definitely a, a country that is very conducive to entrepreneurship and, and innovation. I think if you see what they accomplished in the last 50 years under the vision of Lee Kuan Yew, um, you know, in a democracy, and this is not a, a not, nothing against democracy, but the focus that the person had in, in trying to get things done lives in the spirit of everything. So no compromises to be made, having a very clear focused vision and doing everything possible to get that done. You know, that just lives in everybody that you do business with in, in Singapore. So for a, for a business like ours, it's it's really great to try to, to do innovative things. Uh, not a lot of bureaucracy at all. Very open to trying new things. So yeah, very, very positive environment for for an innovative company like Johnson & Johnson. And how would you feel, how do you, how do you think that compares to, say, um, your experience in Europe? I mean, maybe, I don't know where Johnson & Johnson um, Johnson & Johnson are domiciled in Europe, but how does it compare, do you think, that attitude? I mean, are Europeans the same way? I mean, I know Germans, for example, are very entrepreneurial and, you know, they get things done and they do a bloody good job. I don't have that much experience with people from Belgium um, other than we, we look after NATO, so we do the NATO facility there in terms of their uh, data centre security. Um, but that's sort of a bit of a black box for us. I don't really get to see anybody because we're not a NATO member here in Australia and um, uh, so I don't really get to see what's going on. I have to rely on our UK guys. So I don't have experience here, but Europe has parts of Europe have a great reputation as being very entrepreneurial, innovative, as I said, particularly Germany. How do these places compare with Singapore? What's your experience in this, Chris? Well, I think most of Europe does have an innovative spirit, but what I think the difference is with Singapore is, is the lack of bureaucracy that you see there. Uh, because, you know, in, in a European democracy where governments change every few years, you have different stakeholders, you have to start making your case over and over again. And you don't see that in, in a country like Singapore. Uh, so they're in it for the long term. They have a vision going out 20, 25 years. And that's much easier to work with than people who are in government for three to five years. And you have to make your case over and over again. So... Uh, it's probably generalizing, but it's something that we've come across. So, like, if, if for example, if... James, let's talk about pharmaceuticals for a moment. And I, I know there's an issue, not necessarily for James, but there's an issue in Australia policy-wise. Um, if Johnson Johnson come up with a, a new drug that's um, better in terms of um, healing depression or schizophrenia or something along those lines and you've got to get on the list here and you are battling with the Australian authorities, not necessarily the Prime Minister or the Ministers but more the bureaucracy and I'll put this to you Bruce and maybe Christoph and Chris might have a view on this as well but I mean how does it compare in Australia for example to what you're, what Chris is talking about Singapore and maybe what you experienced in Japan, how does, it, how does it happen, let's say this drug is so much better than everything else is currently on the PBS uh, the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. How does it compare? Yeah, so so uh, I mean, Australia has the the two step system where you get your registration based on your the safety and the effectiveness, the efficacy of your drug, and then there's a there's a system, a cost effectiveness system. So Australia assesses cost effectiveness, and um, as you said, that can sometimes take uh, quite a bit of time. Which means how long? Much time we talking about, Bruce? Here, like? Well, I mean, it's a minimum of uh, 
usually around a minimum of a a year, but it can extend uh, well beyond that. And is there economic consequences? I mean, sorry, what I should say is another way. Is the government largely concerned with how much of the bill they're picking up here? I mean, is it, when I say economics, I mean, is it, you know, budgetary issues? Well, there's the PBS uh, system here, so uh, everybody has access to to the medications, and so um, there's a a budget to manage. So sometimes uh, managing the short-term budget can have some consequences in terms of the speed with which medicines get listed. So just for those people listening, so what I'm trying to sort of walk, walk through here is in Australia, and it's quite interesting, we've got people from other parts of the world here. In Australia, we have a pharmaceutical benefit scheme, which basically um, uh, picks up the cost to a patient of the drugs that they buy that sit under the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, the PBS, um, such that they're sort of like, uh, to some extent, uh, paid for by the government. You only have to pay a small amount. Is that what we're talking about here? Bruce, and then oh, what happens is we, you know, obviously the government, this costs the government a lot of money, um, and what we have here is a government who's trying to uh, build surpluses or at least move away from deficits, so we have, have this massive budgetary pressure in Australia, and right now, for example, we have, you know, the government's not collecting the sort of taxes that they've collected in the past, we look like we've got a bad economic downturn, uh, gross domestic product's not going to reach the numbers that they expected to reach, we've got a budget coming up in a, in a month or so, so the government's sort of going to tighten its belt. So they're not in a mood to spend more money on new pharmaceuticals that may, I'm just asking you now, I mean, this may not be the case, but may actually help someone get over um, their illness in a faster or more efficient or more effective way by someone like Johnson Johnson introducing a new drug. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Maybe Christoph's like the expert on this. Oh, okay, cool, yeah, cool. Sure, it's, it's my, my favourite topic. And, and going back to, to your first point, if you, if you look across the world, and I, I have the pleasure to look at different healthcare systems everywhere in the world, yes, there's a huge time gap between access to new innovations between country A and country B and C. Can I, and just, Chris, yeah. innovation is an important word here. Yes. Because people sure. were just thinking, oh, there's just a new drug that Johnson Johnson wanted to sell in the world, and, you know, like there are big pharmaceutical company. It's actually innovation because someone has sat down and invented this new this new treatment. Yes, is that what you mean by innovation? It's, it's, yes, it's real innovation. And if you have to think about that, that bringing a drug from the early discovery actually onto the market can take 10, 15 years in development. And someone's making that investment. Someone has to invest in that for 10, 15 years, not knowing exactly what the outcome is, but driven by the point that there's still huge unmet need in many disease areas where there are just no treatments available at all. And everybody thinks of the pharmaceutical companies as big, greedy buggers. Exactly. So, But really what you're doing is you're investing... In these, innovate, in, in these innovative ways of curing diseases. Yeah. Sure, you want to make money because you just spent 15 years in building this bloody thing. Um, and then you're running, because the next roadblock, because we, we're talking about roadblocks here, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, we're talking about inno- roadblocks yeah. to innovation. Yeah. If exactly. you think that every time, in a, for, lucky for you, that Australia's only a small market in your market, but if, you, if the whole world was similar to Australia and uh, you thought, mate, this may not ever get up. I might never get be able to sell this new drug. You might think to yourself... Yeah. John, John, Johnson Johnson might say, well, we're not going to spend any money on this. Why bother? Yeah, what, uh, yeah absolutely. I think at, at the end, it's, it's a long-term investment that, that companies take, and someone has to do it, as we always say, and it's us that try to find new solutions. And we recently launched drugs, for example, in areas like TB, where there has nothing been developed for 40 years. TB, like multi- tuberculosis? Yes, yeah. multidrug-resistant TB, first drug 40 years. 
developed in our own labs, or we have external innovation where we work together with other companies where we just launched a drug for blood cancers, where there is no solution out there right now that delivers the same benefits for patients. So it's a long investment. Nevertheless, the, the key point is, as, as you said, you only do these investments if you know that you get the reward for the innovation. And right now, what we see in many markets, and I would argue including Australia, is that the system, since it's so diverse in its structure itself. You have different bodies. You have your regulatory that looks at safety and efficacy. You have your PBS scheme that looks at the budget impact or the cost of the medicine. And sometimes these systems are not, not synced. The innovation sometimes goes very fast, right? For example, the, the drugs that we recently launched in cancer, they are so innovative that they what is called in US breakthrough innovation status. So you can actually stop the trials early in phase two because it's unethical to keep the patients on a placebo so the regulatory body says, put all these patients directly on your active drug because it has so high benefits. So that is good, you would say. Mm. However, something like that here. Yeah, you, you need something like that yeah. here. However, then the, your reimbursement authority, your PBS concept comes here, but we don't have the data that we need actually to evaluate the value of that drug because you stopped the trial early. So you, you are punished, yeah. which means that the one authority is catching up with the level of innovation and how you value innovation, and the other is still a little bit behind. So what would you recommend? I mean, what's best practice? What, what could the Australian government... If, you, if Malcolm Turnbull, our pr Prime Minister, was standing here right now, and he's been spruiking innovation, and I, I think genuinely, what would you say to him right now in relation to the innovation that's been going on forever from organisations like J&J? Yeah, I think that the key piece is to reward this innovation in a holistic way so that all bodies in a country like, like Australia see the innovation and the line that we want to bring these innovations to our patients in the fastest possible way. So if a body like FDA US says, yes, you get approval for that drug, you have proven that it's safe, then the Australian regulatories bodies shouldn't do the same work again. So they, have some, they should have some sort of treaty. Exactly. They say that there should be an international treaty, which Australia can enter, that says if the FDA standards are satisfied and they've done the testing, we, we will accept that. Mm. And the treaty goes the other way. The FDA could say if the Australian authorities done the testing, we'll accept the, the, the outcomes. Is yeah, that... so it's, I, I mean, I think every country struggles with this because everybody has these, these pressures on healthcare. And if you look within healthcare, usually pharmaceutical companies are an, a relatively easy target to go after. But I think the concept is if you talk about innovation, I mean, if we as a pharmaceutical company can demonstrate that this is going to, over time, alleviate the healthcare burden and the patient experience is positive and is better than anything that's out there. I think governments do have a responsibility to work with it and say, okay, there has to be some reward for innovation because if we don't continue to invest in progress, we're going to run into a problem. Now, that's a challenge. Often people look at the short-term impact to their healthcare budget, but they forget that long-term there's going to be really an alleviation of the burden. We can eradicate he hepatitis C right now, but it comes at a price for the drug. But longer term, every government in the world will benefit from this. And this is the issue I think Christoph was raising before. Uh, the problem is, Chris, is because is that the government's here for three, four years. Yeah. yeah. And they yeah. think in their term. Yes. And they're saying, well, wait a minute. I mean, whilst we policy-wise we would like to just leave a great legacy for Australia in the next 20 years, um, what I can't do is I can't go and adopt all these new drugs in the short term because you know, we run in deficits and, I start, and I've got to reduce my deficits. And if I'm going to be running deficits, I might not get re-elected in three years' time. 
that's sort of the issue. So there's a, a structural problem. Because one of the things that just struck me is that, I mean, I mean there's an adver- you probably haven't seen it yet, but there's an advertising campaign on television, at, um, freeway television at the moment, where the Australian government is talking about the importance of innovation and making Australia the innovation country and all that sort of stuff. And this is off the back of what they announced in December last year. The they ideas point, boom. The ideas boom, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting, Nick Boris, is that I think is this. It seems to me where they're heading towards is innovation for startups, innovation for small business, but they're not thinking about innovation for big business. Mm. In other words, they're sort of saying, look, stuff big business. Uh, they're big boys. They've got big balance sheets. They make big profits. Um, we're not really going to worry about them because they're going to innovate anyway. What we're trying to do is you know, put the uh, encouragement at the, at the other end, you know, like with small tech startups and people sort of coming to incubators and that sort of stuff, um, which is great. But to be frank with you, some some of the greatest innovation actually comes out of the big companies because they're actually the best resources and they're innovating all the time. Yeah, and also big companies working together with the small startups. Yeah. So that, that's definitely our model where um, in, in the last uh, five years here in Australia, we did more than, uh, we did around 30 investments in um, startup companies, uh, collaborations with universities. Explain that, Bruce. To, I want to hear about this. So... Um, you know, Australia has great science, it has uh, great inventiveness, but um, to, for innovation to work, you've got to complete the whole cycle. And so we, we have not just a financial investment, but also we make a people investment in these partnerships. So we bring our scientists to work alongside people here in Australia. We have different skills, right? So someone might be able to invent an idea but they don't know how to take it to to turn it into a product or turn commercialise it. it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So universities, for example, as I understand, you have a partnership with the university in Queensland. That's right. We we have multiple partnerships around the country. Actually, we have quite quite a lot going on in Queensland. Quite a lot going on in uh, Victoria as well. So let's say, just how would it work? I mean, I know you've just come back to the job in Australia, but you were here before, weren't you? Before you went to I was, yes. So you probably might be sort of leaning on your memory a little bit here. But um, as I understand it, academics in universities are very good at coming up with new ideas and sort of playing with. uh, petri dishes and, you know, they find things and they... But they do need to lean on organisations like J&J, for example, to sort of work out whether this, this is something worth being beta tested or yeah. tested in a market environment, yeah. in, a, in a proper lab, yeah. yes. like a commercial lab. So, yeah, yeah so we, we, um, we started a few years ago with establishing what we call innovation centres across the world. We have a satellite here in, in Australia as well. And the idea is that we make space and know-how and lab equipment and even our people available for young entrepreneurs, startups who just want to try something new. They, they get the space, they can use our, our equipment, they can use our know-how. And then we hope that eventually, if something comes out of it, we'd be a preferred partner. But it's not mandatory. I mean, they're free to do what they want just uh, as a model of open innovation, which we really strongly believe in. Our, our head of R&D says the world is our laboratory. Why should we limit ourselves to our own internal know-how and not open ourselves up to the world and see what comes out. So that's that's the concept of that. So, and so most Chris, people would know that. Chris Slayla and Todd were telling me about something called J Labs that you run in other c- countries around the world. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that and why, and it, is there any plan to, to do one here in Australia? Well, we do have the Innovation Centre, the J Labs at this point, and you had Diego Morales here on the show, yeah. uh, is a US um, venture at this moment, just to see yeah. how, how successful that is. But I think if that model 
uh, is going to work. We definitely think about replicating that across other parts of the world. And I think Australia, because building on what Bruce says, has been incredible innovation over the years here, would be an ideal place to start something like that. How well has it gone for you globally? Have you seen any products come out of there that, that aren't from Jane, you know, because it's, it's predicated on, you know, people that aren't J&J employees or Janssen, Janssen employees? No, they're not Janssen employees. Yeah, yeah so they're, they're people that run startups and yeah. part, partner with yeah. you guys. Have any of those products that are partnered that... No, so that's the thing. The innovations in the J-Labs is what we would call really the long-term play. Right, they're, yeah. they're people looking at things that probably, in the best case, would enter the market, market beyond 2025. Right, okay. So, yeah, so that's really, really early, the, the newest stuff that's out there that we're trying to see. I think that, that speaks to the benefit of working together, small companies and big companies. Yeah. I explained earlier, it takes 10, 15 years to develop a drug. No startup will survive 10, 15 years Correct. to be able... To, to do the full development where you need thousands of patients and, and yeah. trials globally everywhere. There, Big Pharma can come in, but only if there's a business for Big Pharma as well, right? And if you look at it from a pure investment point of view, at the end, you could argue we compete for funds with startups at Wall Street as well. So there needs to be that, that, that balance that, that the big guys get the reward for innovation that we need as much as there needs to be space for startups, right? Because at, at, at the end, all our businesses are funded in the same way. I think this is also something where, where sometimes I, th I think that the governments are struggling to, to really understand that, that big picture, how innovation works, how healthcare works, that yes, it's funded in some countries by, by, by government money, by tax money as well. But at the end, they are privately run companies that bring this innovation. Mm. No government will ever be able to pull up pull through an entire development plan for drugs. That's a very interesting uh, point, Christoph, because what's sort of coming up is, and I hate to use this word because it's overused, but collaboration is sort of coming out of this. Mm. It seems to me a, a, the best practice that could be employed in Australia, and Wyatt, Roy, I hope you're listening. I know he listens to all our podcasts. Um, he's the junior innovation minister in Australia. Um, uh, governments, this government would be uh, well served if it worked out a way of not only encouraging startups and innovation and stuff, but a way of um, encouraging the collaboration for for the future between big organisations and these great little idea entrepreneur people. Mm -hmm. Because Especially in healthcare, where the, yes, where, the, yeah. where the endpoints are so far away. And and, and, and the other thing, Nick yeah. Boris said, the, especially in healthcare, because it has a massive drain on the economy when the healthcare problem arises, mm. you know, whether it's, you know, people getting older, people with dementia, people with uh, um, schizophrenia but during, the, during their lives, people with uh, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. So there's so many of these things mm. that could actually, over time, actually drain the economy. They kill the economy. Yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, yeah. and then what happens then, if they don't have a solution for it, the Australian government says, oh, shit, we don't have enough money, we better go and raise the taxes, yeah, it's probably which all of us end up paying for. So yeah. it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's a massive argument around this, a, a, great, a great discussion around this, and it would be a good one for us to actually talk to White Roy about and say to White, you know, you need to start to engage the collaboration more closely, not only of Johnson Johnson Healthcare, but financial services. They need to get someone like National Australia Bank because, you know, we need to keep up with the rest of the world in a global sense in terms of financial services offerings that are being made at here because Australians are investing their money for their futures. So in this country, guys, the way it works is the government doesn't pay for your retirement. You have to, it does in a small way, but you have to actually save your money in a superannuation fund over time your employer pays it. So the day you retire, there's no drain on the Australian economy. Yeah. So 
if the people who are saving their money 9% parameters, if each of us superannuees are putting our money in every year, and all, but we're putting it in the hands of somebody who's managing that money for us and uh, they stuff it up, um, we then will be in a position where we will be draining the economy when the day comes when we retire. I'm talking about in a yeah. gross number, a lot of number of people. So it's in the government's interest to work out ways to make savings and this investment pro- process much more valuable and much more efficient and, and much better yield. And I know in the United States there's all these different models which actually do that. In Australia, the problem is you can't do it because uh, we have all these bloody rules and regulations around what you can and can't do as an investment manager and what you can and can't do if you're a superannuee and uh, et cetera. And government should be encouraging people like National Australia Bank and the banks to come in and partner up with entrepreneurs to build new technologies to allow um, people who are saving their money to actually uh, save more efficiently and get a better yield so that when the day comes when they retire, they're actually in a much better position. So it's no different to what I'm saying yeah. about healthcare yeah. because it is our financial health too. True. Financial health is just as important. Yeah. And then, and then bro- more broadly, um, whatever we can do to technologically um, change Australia is, is better. Um, it's not – and what kills me is uh, all we ever seem to talk about in this country is apps. Um, you know, apps just, to me, is the final straw and a bit of uh, innovation. You know, the app's just an easy way to get to it. It's mm. just an access. Everyone only thinks of technology in terms of apps in this country. You know, like, and I guess you probably experience it globally too. But the deep, the deep innovation is all this lab stuff, this stuff where people are inventing things and yeah. testing things over and thousands, thousands, thousands of hours and getting it approved by the regulatory environments. And, uh, and uh, that's sort of... One of the things that, uh, you know, Johnson & Johnson do, which is why I was sort of really pleased when I, when I spoke to Layla and Todd yesterday about having you guys in. I mean, I, I appreciate the opportunity for you guys to come in and talk about this because if we get enough people listening to this sort of stuff and they start to message the government, the government may stay, start to pay attention because unfortunately mm-hmm. governments don't pay attention unless there's pressure, yeah. voting pressure. Mm-hmm. You guys probably lobby them. Everybody does, I but guess, I mean, right it's but it doesn't go anywhere. They say, "Oh, they're the big greedy pharmaceutical company, make lots yeah, of money." But and oh, you're not paying enough tax in Australia. You're like Google or something like that. I mean, that's uh, that's the game. Uh, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, I, I I'm not saying you are like Google, uh, but that's uh, the process. Yeah. yeah, they don't really give a stuff about you guys. Yeah, I think the 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 issue is still that that very often healthcare is just seen as as being a cost point in your balance sheet, right? Where you should actually see it as, as use it as an investment, right? Yeah. Because it delivers benefits not only for the patient, but also for the economy itself. Yeah. It actually invests money, positively speaking, rather than, than maybe some other industries where you can ask what the net value to a society actually is, right? That's a debate we have in developing countries in Asia as well, where, where healthcare competes with other investments, where it's proven that if you invest in healthcare and you have a healthy society, a healthy wer- workforce itself, it supports the economy. What, what does the Singaporean government think about healthcare? Do they have a PBS system, like or? A yes, they have a, yeah. have a combination of, of a government healthcare system and a, and a private contribution, so self-pay, a good mixture. And then, depending on on income levels, they have um, additional programs to help people as low income or older people. Um, this is a, it's a joint financing of the healthcare system, but they also link it very closely to the point that we had earlier with their research initiatives again, so very strong in biotech research, for example. They're very strong in working together between the universities and startups and big organizations at the same time. So they see healthcare as, as one part, a very important part for their society and for their economy at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then what do you see in Japan? 
Bruce. So, so Japan has a, a system of universal health care like, like Australia does, and um, it's, it's mostly funded by taxpayer alongside some pri private insurance contributions through employees, but it's all managed at a national level, very similar to Australia. But uh, interestingly, um, one of the uh, approaches the Japanese government is taking is tr to try to get medicines to people early. So there, there is no delay between the registration and the reimbursement mm. process in Japan. And it is, it, it's more of a, I, I, I guess, the ageing population factor in Japan has it more top of mind for consumers. Like there's 27% of people in Japan over 65 already. And uh, so having access to the latest technology is a big deal and it is something that people are aware of. Yeah. I would just want to build on that. I mean, I think with the system that you have in Australia, you see across many developed countries, similar system about reimbursement or with, with what you said with pensions and so on. I think where some of the differences are being made and we used to have it in Australia as well is what really benefits an industry like ours is to have a long-term kind of framework agreement with a government saying, look, if we do these investments, we're going to get a decent price. We're going to make sure that we don't bankrupt your system, but give us a stability framework within we can work and not yeah, bombard us with uh, unexpected price decreases because they are so bad uh, to, to continue to invest in innovation. And I think we lost that a little bit in, in Australia over the last few years. What, what do you put it down to? I mean, what, why, why do you think? Short-term pressures, I would think, is, is definitely one thing. There's also often a misconception that uh, the use of pharmaceutical drugs are really um, bankrupting the system. But if you look over time, the, the, the share of pharmaceutical products in the overall healthcare budget has basically across the world, also in Australia, been constant or even slightly go down versus other healthcare costs. And I think it's a misconception that a lot of people don't see. Products that used to be very expensive after they become generics are, are available for pennies. Now we get the whole debate about oncology drugs. Yes, they are expensive, but the first big one is going to go off, off patent uh, sometime this year or next year and it'll be available for for really small money. So it's a self-regulating system and people do tend to forget about that. Would you change, the as a J&J &J person, would you change the patent laws? Not, not in relation to J&J patents, but everyone else's. I mean, do you think the patent laws is something that should be looked at? Well, in I terms of making access, things more accessible quick, more quickly? I think uh, the patent system works really well, but you have to make sure that within that patent-protected period, you get to work with, a, let's say, a certain stability framework that you say, you know what, as long as your product is patented, it's going to get a decent price, we're going to make it available. And, and, and we lost a little bit uh, of that, not just in Australia, but in, in, in many countries uh, across the world. Because it comes down to social conscience. This is all about social it conscience. Does, it does, yeah. And in developed countries, in my view, um, we should get free education. <laughs> I think that's, that's a, it's a right Mm -hmm. So it should be a human right. A bill, it should be in the Bill of Rights for Education. We don't have a Bill of Rights in Australia, by the way. And um, and healthcare. I mean, if you if you spend your life uh, paying taxes and working for the country and being productive, then one thing you should be entitled to is when you get older, is that you should. Well, even when you during intervivus, even while during that period when you're doing all these things and being a good citizen, you should be able to rely on the fact you can fall back on the healthcare system to support you if something goes wrong. Yes. It seems to me a basic right. Yeah. 
and everybody, what, but what's conveniently happened is, in my observation, is everybody's turned it into the, the greedy pharmaceutical com- companies in that regard and everybody sort of pushed the books down your end of the shelf and made it look like you guys are sort of some sort Red of evil guys. dark... Yeah. Dark group yeah. are doing something terrible, and you're not innovating, and you're not, and organisations, and and same goes with banks here. I mean, look, I'm not the greatest supporter of the banks in the country because I compete against them, but at the same time, I know that the banks here do great innovative things and do um, brilliant work. And we, I, I think it's one thing to criticise somebody for being a big organisation and being perhaps uh, you know profiteering, but it, it, that's fine. You can have a view, but you should also have a balanced view where if they're being innovative, you should give them credit for the innovation. Exactly. Yeah, and I think so, the, the logic is if you have no patents, you will have no innovation in no part of, of any economy, in any industry. And if you have no innovation and no patents, you don't have generics. Right? So, so yeah. you can't have the one without the other. Right? So I think this is what, what people need to, th- to think about, that innovation in healthcare only happens because there is that guarantee of the investment over a period of time. Nobody would invest in any technology if it would not be protected for some times for the returns. I agree. And then once it gets generic, yes, it's available maybe then, then for everybody and at a lower cost. And then you can invest in the next innovation again. Yeah. But, but sometimes people just forget this logic that no patent, no generics. Because basically when you're investing in innovation, you're investing in an asset that one day is going to um, deliver you an annuity, some royalties or some income. If you don't think that that can be protected. In other words, you, you're not going to get the royalties, which is what you get out of, ultimately what you get out of something that's protected intellectual property, then why the hell would you invest in the first place? It doesn't make sense. So if I had Christopher Pine here right now, who's the senior minister for innovation, um, and, and, or the, and, and White Roy and the prime minister, um, what would J&J say to them today on your wish list? You know, top two things you'd like to see happen in Australia, for argument's sake. I would say a long-term stability framework, as we used to have it. Something that we say, you know what, we're going to make a pact with the industry, meaning that we will have um, limitations on what spending could be, but at least we have a framework within we can work and that gives us some stability in the end. Just to build on what what Christo said is, you know, um, there is... uh, we have a, a limited payback period for our products. The patent goes for 20 years. It takes 8 to 12 years to develop. So you have to make sure you can get that reward for innovation in that remaining period. If we're going to erode that period of the patent, which we sometimes see happening around, uh, right now, then the innovation model gets destroyed. And, and that's something we would need to avoid. But, Bruce, maybe you can yeah, add no, something. I, I totally agree. It's predictability that we're looking for. And when I, when I was last uh, here in Australia, the industry negotiated a memorandum of understanding with the government, which worked well because it gave some sort of framework and stability for the system and uh, it would it would be really good to, to get back to that kind of discussion. So what happened to the MOU? What was the well, memorandum? it ran, uh, it was ran for course. a certain period of time, it ran its course and, it were, and you know, uh, for various reasons it wasn't renewed. Uh, so would, uh, it would be good to get renew? back to the table. Did you want to renew it? Did you say let's renew this or and did they say no or...? No, I, I think the uh, the players change and, and there's various reasons why it went the course that it went, but I think it's good time with the innovation on the agenda now to take stock and, and, and revisit the whole uh, innovation cycle. And, and Christoph, I think I would ask for a partnership 
to ensure the sustainability in the way how we improve healthcare and health outcome for patients. So, but this partnership component, not not the government versus the industry. Right? Yeah, yeah. We all are in, in in the same boat. We all have, have the same desire actually to have a healthy society, and let's work on that together in a partnership and for a sustainable model of innovation. Everybody knows the outcomes. It's quite interesting because it's a good time to start the discussion because they've actually started it. Mm. They're, they're talking about innovation. And um, and if you can't talk about innovation just because you're trying to encourage small businesses to pop up everywhere in Australia to take the place of the mining boom that we don't have anymore yeah, exactly. and the construction boom we don't have anymore, it's a bit shallow to me. If it's real innovation discussion, if this, if this marketing program which the government's involved in now and I keep seeing... Malcolm Turnbull standing up in front of people saying, you know, you know this innovation country, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it looked good stuff. And look, I'm not having a crack at him because, look, this is not his territory and he's trying to run a country as well. He's only new in the job. But he needs to sit down and talk to blokes like you to find out what's actually going on in the system. And he needs then to go to his minister, it may not be innovation ministers, as probably minister for health or somebody, I don't know who it is you normally would talk to, mm. and say, hey, you're going to sit down and pay a bit of attention here because I'm trying to run an innovation platform here and what you're doing is you're not actually helping the innovation platform along, which is the great thing that happens in places like India. So Modi, for example, the new Prime Minister of India. Does India come under... Yes. The subcontinent come yeah. under your area? Okay. Um, I recently read a book. Uh, I was lucky enough with Gina Reinhardt, who's um, the, uh, Australia's richest woman. She, she owns... Well, her family sort of own the largest iron ore deposits in the world, I think. Um, they're Australian-based, and uh, she sent me her book recently because she's very interested in small business and innovation in this country, and she wrote, wrote a book recently called uh, From Red Tape to Red Carpet, and she borrowed this this concept from Red Tape to Red Carpet. She borrowed it from Modi, Prime Minister Modi, who's the, um, you guys don't know, but I'm just saying for our listeners, the new Prime Minister of India, whose platform is to turn India from an over-regulated country to uh, a much better, more freewheeling sort of country. And some of the innovations, for example, he said, if you have less than 100 employees, Modi said this, you don't have to apply to any regulation. You don't have to apply to be licensed. You can go and open a cafe, put seats out in the street. You don't have to worry about anything. Probably wouldn't work so well here in Australia, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's, and it's an extreme example, but the point being here is, you know, we do spend $250 billion a year. Our GDP is only $1.5 billion. Uh, $1.5 trillion, we spend $250 billion a year in this country, it costs us $250 billion a year just to go through the regulatory environment. Mm. It's a, nearly, a, a, you know, 18% of our total GDP is real crazy. So what Modi's done is he's, uh, you know, and in India, by the way, is the most regulated bureaucratic country in the world. I've had some experience. I've worked with General Electric over there for many years. Um, it's, you know, it's one of the things that the English left, one of the great legacies the English left the Indian economy and one of the things that... Um, uh, Gandhi did not get rid of uh, when they when they had the big sort of uh, war and revolution. I think it was forty seven. Is that he kept the bureaucracy because it kept everyone engaged and working. <laughs> and so you know, ten jobs for one dollar each instead of one person doing one ten dollar job. I get it, cool. But what has happened is it's become a, a massive issue. And what Modi has done, and what Gina Reinhart loves about Modi, and why she launched got Modi to launch her book is because they've worked out that you, your country's sustainability, sustainability economically will, um, will fail if you don't get rid of the regulatory environment and then if government does not actually work with industry. And what you're saying here, Christoph, is it needs to be a partnership yeah. and not, not just a selective partnership but a partnership for everybody. 
And what I think the government needs to do in this country is actually take a leaf out of their book, out of what, uh, leaf out, literally out of Gina Reinhardt's book, and, but definitely a leaf out of what Modi's doing in India. We are a heavily regulated country for such a small country, 23 million people. We're ridiculously uh, regulated and some would say it's for our health and our safety and, you know, the beauty of the city and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I agree, it's the most beautiful place in the world as far as I'm concerned, but nonetheless, we, can, we need to moderate that a little bit. Then and I'm and I'm I mean I, I guess I'm not here to tell the prime minister what to do, but I don't give a shit. I am going to tell him what to do. That's my view. We need to under uh, moderate this country and just change a few things and encourage organisations like you know who have big balance sheets, who make big investments and in, um, big healthcare things like you guys and big other big technological co- companies who do other big things instead of punishing them all the time and putting them on the front page of the newspaper because they haven't done this or they, we thought they did that. We've got to encourage much more innovation. We've got to actually take a different mindset. It's mindset stuff yeah. for me. It's yeah. not just looking after the small startup guy. Look, we, you know, we're a big uh, proponent of small startups and advocate of small startups. I mean, that's what we do. But equally, we've got to start to look after the big guys because the big balance sheets, as you said, Christoph, it's all about money. Where is the capital going to come from? I might have a great idea and I can take you to uh, San Francisco and I can find some venture, venture capitalists. But they're not going to say to me, Mark, I'll, I'll invest in you for 15 years while you develop a new drug to treat cancer. They just won't do it. Mm-hmm. The only people who do that is someone who has an interest in it, like a financial interest in it. That's the bottom line. And sure, some of the stuff, you can go into San Francisco, we can get new mobile phones, we get Apple, Apple and we get Google and we can, it's all cool stuff. And it does change our lives. But one thing is we need to do is something that actually protects our lives. Yep. You know, all these guys making billions of dollars and stuff like that. At the end of the day, um, and you know, Steve Jobs is a good example. I mean, unless you don't have the right treatments and someone investing in the right treatments, I mean, how much bloody money you make. And I'm 60 years of age this year and one of the things that's become really um, important to me and as I look at my older relatives and uh, is um, how do you live a better quality of life? Mm-hmm. And that's become particularly important in my way of thinking more recently. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that VCs will not put money in for 15 years. That's too big a horizon for them. And you guys are the sorts of organisations that we have to turn to because the governments won't put the money in, that's for sure. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think it goes back to that reward for innovation. In the end, we also have shareholders. We're a high-risk business because the investment takes 10 to 15 years. If you want to be able for people to continue to invest in a company like Johnson & Johnson, we have to make sure that during that patented period, you make a fair return on the innovations you bring. That's what it comes down to. Let's say you've got a... Uh, is it a 10 or 15 year patent normally? What would 20 it be? years. 20 but usually it takes 8 to 12 years before your product uh, hits the market after many failures as well. So. And what would be, in that 20 year period, patent period where you're protected, what would be the recovery period of, what's it take, 10 years to recover your investment after which you start to make money or how does it work? Yeah, it depends also on the kind of product you have. We have products that never make their return. I mean, the tuberculosis product we developed will never be a commercial success, but we believe there's an ethical reason for bringing a product like that to people in India and China where where it's such a big uh, unmet disease. 
And then you have other products um, like more in the specialist care where, where you'd say, you know, that 20-year period should be able to recover them. Some never do, some do. So it depends on the nature of the product. But I think we never look at it on an individual product basis. We look yeah. at it over the overall portfolio. So it's a mix. Yeah, it has to be the mix. And the overall mix has to work out in a positive return. So, so what's interesting about that is you actually make an ethical decision too. You, so that, because... You know, as you say, you've got a mix, you've got a whole variety of things. You can probably, you have the luxury of saying, you know what, we're doing well in these five and we've got this one other one we can actually introduce to help tuberculosis in places like China and India mm-hmm. and you can make those ethical decisions yeah. Yeah. because exactly. you have the luxury. Yeah. If you look at the product though at time zero and you, and you deem it you know, on your assumptions to have a negative MPV but it is actually ethical to, to make that product, will you still go ahead? Yeah, yeah. exactly. The right. thing is okay. if you look at people in, on this ex, uh, case to pergolosis, the people who need that product will never be able to afford it because it's a population that really doesn't have any money to support it. So when we came across this, we said, you know, we have to develop this. There is too much of an unmet medical need. It would be almost criminal to walk away from this. Right. So, yeah. And you call it the luxury, but I think it's it's more like a kind of an obligation to be allowed in this business because if you only would work towards the high end, I don't think you deserve a place in healthcare. that's very interesting you should say that because you know what? What's very interesting about that is venture capitalists only go for the high end. Venture capitalists looking for the return. Yeah. They are... You know, in the crudest sense, and I'm second part of their name, capitalist. Yeah, correct. Yeah. I'm one of them. Uh, we only we say we look. We, we say, well, that's great, but you know, you know, it's not going to make any money. So maybe you should go and take that to Johnson Johnson. I mind. that's the sort of con- con- conversation we would have. Take that shit to Johnson and Johnson, <laughs> <laughs> because there's no money in that for us. Now you need a big, big balance sheet. To yeah, do. I mean, I'm serious. Yeah. So if you want to fund um, socially important, you know. Uh, Technology, whether it's an innovation, whether it's in pharmaceuticals or whether it's in any other area, you need these big organisations who have the, I said luxury, but let's say the obligation or the combination of both to do it for us as a world. Exactly. Now, yeah. Also, the, the point is that, that you don't develop the drug that makes it to the market. You also develop 10 at the same time that will fail on the way because it just doesn't work out, there are safety concerns or it doesn't deliver the, the value that you are looking for. And what also I think what, what people don't understand is that the cost of the medicine that you buy also has to fund the 10 that failed. Yeah, yeah. Because, it's, again, it's the same concept of investment. <clears throat> it's like having 10 venture capital running at the same time and only one makes it. But we have to fund the 10 because we don't know which one is going to work, right? Mm-hmm. So, therefore, that, that's also something when you then have, have governments that evaluate the value of drug A versus B. They missed this point that they can only do that because there were many others that failed. Because they don't think about the ones that you that you did that failed that you invested in. They only think of the ones you successfully exactly ended. exactly. So that that piece yeah. is missing. And the the other part just just to come back to to first make the point that Sydney, by the way, is the nicest place on on the planet. I would absolutely agree. Um, and and the point your point on India. I was there last week, and I've I've been there over the last couple of years, many 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 times. And you could see the change in government. Mm. It was a little bit like red tape. Just to get yeah. an appointment at the government was an absolute nightmare. Now it's no issue to get an appointment. They are much more open. They want to work together with you. They make time on your calendar. And now we have active cooperations with the government in India and academics and and others. For example, on on that TB. A program where we work together with government officials, with academia, and us to try to address the issue of TV in India yeah. with no commercial interest. 
But the government has certainly a high interest in it from a public health point of view. And we also have a high interest in it because we think this is something that needs to be solved. But it's a partnership. But it's not us. Where which is something the government could take out of Australian government could take out of what Modi's doing, and which yes. is what Jenna Reinhardt's trying to push. Which is great, good on Jenna. Look, I, I'm, I've got to wind up, um, but I just I didn't actually ask the question or to address the very first thing I wanted to talk about. That's the global economy. Um, I just wanted to say because <laughs> I got too involved in all the other stuff. So um, I just wanted to ask, and I'd be interested to hear what you guys say because you come from different regions. Um, we're having massive volatility in Australia, which is a bit merely a reflection of what's going on in the rest of the world in terms of equity markets and also our debt markets. And there is a lot of fear out there. For, I've never seen a year start off with so much fear, um, a calendar year start off with so much fear. And um, I, I, you know, I, mean, I read all this stuff daily. And uh, the three things that are sort of coming out of all this for me is, one, it's China. Um, you know, it's particularly bad for Australia, but China's globally bad for the globe because uh, – we don't know about the real numbers of China. We don't know what, we, what to expect going forward in terms of their growth, although they're still growing at pretty high rates relative to everyone else in the world. But uh, um, we don't know what they're, what they're going to consume from us, the rest of us in the world. So China's an issue. Seeing these oil prices, I mean, oil prices look like they're going to be flat for a hell of a long time, and that's actually having a massive effect on all the markets globally. And uh, finally, uh, we don't know what uh, the Federal Reserve is going to do. We don't know whether they're going to put interest rates up. We don't know whether they're going to keep interest rates where they are. We don't know what an effect that's going to have on the equity markets and the debt markets. Um, and so for those people listening, that's, they're the three main reasons we have massive volatility in the world today. There's nothing fundamentally wrong going out there. I mean, financial stocks, bank stocks, my stock, we're getting smashed. Yet my business had its record half year. At December, had the biggest uh, month in mortgage settlement, $1.5 billion for the month ever in our history. Uh, the CBA put out a half-yearly result showing a, an annualised result of $9.6 billion, one bank. You know, not many, not many banks that will make that sort of money. Another record. Um, yet their share price is, you know, getting belted. Um, I don't really understand. I think it's one of the things I, I, I'm noticing is that Today, uh, fear is, has gripped the market and has got to buy the balls. And it's really making everybody run for cover. Mm. Um, what are you guys seeing out there? Yeah, I'm not an expert, but I would actually agree with you, Mark. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of irrational behavior going on right now, driven by that so-called new normal in China. But if you, if you think about it, if you look back, I think it's, it's actually – Exactly as in, as the term says, it is a new normal in China. There's nothing wrong with going from a GDP growth from 12, 13% to 7% right now. They're also changing their economic model based more on consumption. And, and our business in China is also doing uh, pretty well. So I think, and then, you know, I think a lot has been driven to that whole hike of the stock exchange in Shanghai, which dropped, which is just normal because it was, I think, hugely inflated. But if you see that, the reserves that the Chinese government does have, I think that fear that we have is is just uh, it's just too much. I think the uh, world is in a better shape than it actually looks That's today. That's sort of how I feel about it. Yeah. It's in yeah. pretty good shape, relatively yeah. speaking. But what are you seeing, Bruce? In, what did you see, Bruce, in Japan? I mean, Japan, well, but by Japan, the same way, it's, it's a big yeah. one. Yeah, Japan's in a, a totally different situation. So it's been uh, flat or even a little bit decreasing GDP for a number of years. But if you go to Japan and you walk around the streets, so you 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 see people out spending and doing things. So it, yeah, the world goes on. yeah it, uh, and and Japan's really trying to get address that through different policies. You know, um, 
printing more money, putting more money into the system, trying to get inflation going. And it remains to be seen whether, you know, what they're doing, their uh, focus on certain industries, whether they, they can get it going. And if they can, that will, that will work very well for Japan. And, and, and Christoph, what's your, your global view? I mean, you're obviously traveling, traveling around the globe a lot. I think it's, it's, it's uncertainty that, that drives all of that. But at, at the end, I would, would try to go back to some parts that are certain, and, and compare it maybe to sports. Right now, it's, it's kind of a short-distance run, but I'm a marathon runner, so I'm more in for the long term. And on the long term, what, what always succeeds is the topic that we discussed today is, today is innovation, basic needs of populations, and one basic need of population is health. So if you look for investment, I would say it's, it's health care where everybody should focus on because that's the stability on the long run that is there. And take a long-term view. So if you're an investor... Take a long-term view. Yeah, I mean, like you know, invest in businesses which have, which also take a long-term view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, because the, the problem is we're too short-term in our investment profiles. We think, yeah. Yeah. oh shit, you know, uh, I didn't make any money. I, you know, June's coming up. I haven't made a profit or you know, whatever. I mean, we're starting to think like a government. Yeah, and that's a big problem, gentlemen. I think we're going to adjourn to a coffee shop. But I want to say to you, thank you very, very much. Uh, it's been fascinating talking to the three of you. Um, it's it's rare that our listeners get an opportunity to talk to people at your level from totally different regions of the world, not only where you work, but actually where you, where you come from, and to give us a sort of a global view on things. And I think the whole healthcare sector in Australia is not only Australian-centric, but it's a reflection of what's going on in the rest of the world. And uh, I think I would implore the government and members of the government, and I think what we should do is we should actually send a copy of this, Nick Boris, down to White Roy today, today's event, and we should send down to White Roy as our junior minister and actually see if we can engage him, at least him at this stage, and I think we probably will be able to, to talk to people like Johnson Johnson about these partnership-type concepts when it comes to having a holistic outcome in terms of innovation for this country, for this great country. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Boris. And find out more at markboris.com.au.